honoring one's ancestors might seem innocuous enough on on the surface. I mean, we, we kind of do the same thing, but it's it's the nefarious nature of the spirits that were placated and communicated with during this time of the year that make Salwin and, and by proxy Halloween such a deadly flirtation, if you will, spiritual flirtation. <laughs> You know, there are prescriptions, prohibitions against such practices uh, in the Bible. That's why the penalties for this kind of thing, necromancy, you know, in, in particularly in the Old Testament, carried with it, uh, you know, capital punishment. Trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat. Are you trying to find a way to afford your favorite Bible scholar's next book? Are you searching for the next biblical research book to fill your shelves? Then if you want to justify a $35 plus shipping and handling expense to your spouse, look for savings on your home and auto insurance at the Better Insurance Agency. We can evaluate your insurance rates with multiple carriers to find you the best deal with the best coverage. Because if history has shown us anything, it's that the biblical narrative is real and that you'd better have a good excuse for your spouse on not on getting yet another book by Dr. Judd Burton. So choose the Better Insurance Agency and visit us at www.thebetterquote.com today. This is Dr. Judd Burton of the Institute of Biblical Anthropology, and you're listening to the Dig Bible Podcast. We should read our Bible as men digging for buried treasure. The Bible is the world's most popular enigma. secrets lost to cultures beneath the sands of time. Or is it? It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. God wants you to seek, to read his word, to, to look for that knowledge. He wants you to do that. And the people at Nicaea, they like chopped out 80 books of the Bible. We need to bring those back. There's more bad guys in this thing than a Bruce Willis. Oh, yeah. Let's back it up here. I, I love the intro to your show because it's exactly right. There's these nuggets of gold in his word. You guys always sign the show. You, you gotta dig it. Dig it. Show us your nuggets. God, our creator, lies outside of time and space and matter. I feel like God's be like, hello, McFly. You ain't got it so far, then. There are secret societies think that they are the descendants of the giant. I mean, isn't it, is it this exciting? I mean, you read it, it's like, wow. Nephrology Roundtable. But these angels were taken to help immediately. Do not pass gold, do not collect $200. You're out of the game. Dirty hands means clean theology. Can you dig it? What's going on, all my local guys and gals and long distance pals? We're back. We're back without Ben. Without Ben, it's sad. Our guest today, I think, shamed him out. <laughs> He's got a better beard. He knew he couldn't compete, so he's like, guys, I'm I'm sitting this one out. Well, today with us, we have uh, Dr. Judd Burton, the um, president, owner, the CEO of the School of Biblical Anthropology. Uh, thanks for being on with us again today, Judd. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah, it's been a while, and uh, I know uh, last I'd heard that uh, you and uh, Dr. Aaron Judkins were uh, gearing up for a fringe pop three, two, one. 
yes, that's the plan is to to take over. Uh, that was kind of a torch that the late Dr. Heiser passed on to the both of us. And so we're, we're kind of spitballing um, potential episodes and guests right now. There's a, we've got enough content that Mike recorded um, a couple of years ago to kind of last us through the year. So it's probably going to be the beginning of next year when we start doing just episodes with, with he and I. But we're really, really excited about that. Yeah, I spoke to uh, Aaron on my other show, The Prometheus Lens, and we was talking about it. And he, he said he was really excited, too, to work with you and get started on that. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, uh, I know this is uh, how, how you say not to tread old tires, and uh, but I've heard you talk about uh, Halloween on some other mm-hmm. podcasts. Mm-hmm. And I was wanting to pick your brain and let you explain that to some of our listeners and maybe go down some rabbit trails that uh, haven't been went down yet with you. Mm-hmm. Well, because uh, it, it is the season. The leaves are starting to change. Things are starting mm-hmm. to die. And the uh, all the the witches and the covens are all gearing up for the the thinning of the veil, so to speak. So I, I found no one better to have this conversation with than you. Well, I'm honored. And I think that's a, a big thing that we're talking about this time of year as, as a Christian community. You know, there's the Christian people across the country are very divided on what Halloween is and should you celebrate it, should you not celebrate it. And then really I think it's important that we look at its roots. We look where it came from. Um and the idea, uh, you know, as far back as the the Celts, um, mm-hmm. just want to kind of go through the basic history of Halloween and then kind of get to where we are right now with a couple things. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit about that idea of the thinning of the veil. It's something we've been looking at a little bit lately as well, too. So, sure. but as far as the... And in my experience from all the research of this stuff is the, the holiday, the Celtic holiday of, of Sam Wen, or it pronoun- or it's pronounced that way, but it looks like Sam Hain when you look at that. Mm-hmm. So, Judd, is, can you kind of give us a, a breakdown of where all this idea started from? Sure. Well, Halloween, that has become such an ensconcement in the popular American calendar, is a direct descendant of the, as you mentioned, the Celtic festival of Samhain, uh, which was essentially the Celtic New Year, branching that night between October the 31st and the, the day of November the 1st. This is really just one iteration of a, a festival, what is technically a festival of the dead or a festival of the ancestors, uh, a time when it was thought that um, communication with those ancestors was best facilitated when the the veil as it were between this world and the spiritual world was the thinnest and such communications were easiest but um ancient though the the festival of Samhain is there is certainly there are certainly even more ancient precedents uh, for these festivals of the dead the festivals of the gods which coincidentally generally fell sometime in the fall between August and November, um, even going back to um, the ancient Near East, you know, there were certainly festivals of the dead um, that the Canaanites and Phoenicians celebrated, that the Mesopotamian people celebrated. Um, the Romans had uh, Pomona, uh, in the fall, which was kind of a harvest festival, but also an homage to um, uh, ancestors that had passed along, which was a, a really a, a key feature of ancient Roman society. It was reverence for the dead. There were a number of festivals that the Romans had throughout the course of uh, their calendrical year that um, uh, you know, gave homage to the get the dead. Another one was the Parentalia uh, that took place in uh, February. Uh, but generally, these festivals of the dead um, occurred during the course of, of the latter part of the year, during the fall when the harvest was being brought in. Honoring one's 
ancestors might seem innocuous enough on on the surface. I mean, we we kind of do the same thing, but it's it's the nefarious nature of the spirits that were placated and communicated with during this time of the year that make Salwin and, and by proxy Halloween such a deadly flirtation, if you will, spiritual flirtation. You know, there are prescriptions, prohibitions against such practices uh, in the Bible. That's why the penalties for this kind of thing, necromancy, you know, in, in particularly in the Old Testament, carried with it, uh, you know, capital punishment um, because of the dangers, uh, you know, implicit in that. But there's a, there are all kinds of biblical intersections here that, that should give people pause about taking part in, um, in Halloween. Of course, everybody has to make their, really has to make their own decision. You know, they have to really discern and pray about that sort of thing. But it's not just, it's, it's not just that we're obeying New Testament admonishments about avoiding the, the very appearance of evil, but these, these are ancient practices, the, the communication with the dead, um, that, as I pointed out a moment ago, carried with them a hefty fine, um, not, not just, but not because Yahweh was, a, a, a an overbearing, you know, patriarchal God, but because there were dangers in, in consulting not just the human dead, but especially the other things that paraded around as the human dead, um, namely the Rephaim, uh, who, who are not only linguistically linked with the Rabbah in Mesopotamian uh, mythology, who, who occupied the dead ancestor kings, the dead god kings that occupied the abyss, the watery abyss, the underworld, but also the Rapa in Ugaritic tradition, uh, who also were venerated. We actually have have pretty detailed records uh, in the Ugaritic material uh, about the Phoenicians' uh, rights that were were paid to these dead ancestor kings, dead god kings, um, and uh, along with a, the, a list of other things, these were prohibitions that were laid out by God. Uh, to to avoid because of the uh, well the explicitly demonic nature of the entities that were being uh, trafficked with essentially, um, but outside of the Old Testament, um, and this is based on work that I, I've done recently on Panaeus uh, in trying to nail down the timing of uh, Jesus's arrival at Caesarea Philippi and the events leading up to the, um, the transfiguration. Um, I, I had earlier um, kind of pinned down generally because scholars had known for, for quite some time, or I should say that the consensus had been that Jesus had arrived at, at Caesarea Philippi uh, during the winter before his death. And again, it dawned on me that you had you had January and February to deal with uh, as well, and so I began to look at February, and it dawned on me that the Lupercalia, which was the festival to Pan, uh, would make a lot of sense if if Jesus is firing a shot over the bow of the enemy, so to speak, uh, that that would that would be good timing. But there's another festival taking place against the the backdrop of. Uh, the Lupercalia, and that is the Parentalia, which is this um, week and a half long festival, uh, a series of festivals where the Romans honored dead ancestors. Um, and on the last day of the Parentalia, which I believe now coincides with the Transfiguration, um, the the Greco-Roman culture celebrated this last day of the, the Parentalia um, as probably the most ominous of those days because it was thought that the most wicked and, and nefarious of those spirits were to be placated on that day. So it's a, it, it, it's a perfect juxtaposition uh, of, of the uh, transfiguration. 
uh, and all of that represents. And so there are these, you know, there are glaring examples in the Old Testament of why we shouldn't engage in necromancy. And there are certainly uh, many prescriptions against it in the New Testament uh, as well. Not only in Jesus' ministry, but also, also the apostles that wrote letters um, echoed, um, you know, that concourse with the dead that the pagans uh, took, play, took part in. Now, quick question, Judd. You were saying about the, the parentalia. Um, is that around that same time of year that we're talking about, like early winter or late fall? Well, the parentalia is actually in, on the Roman calendar is in February. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but, it, but it evokes a similar kind of theme and, and practice. But most of these festivals of the dead um, uh, took place, you know, just statistically, took place somewhere between August and November. So it makes sense to me that it's kind of in the fall like that. Cause it, and the way that I've always understood it was it's, you know, it's um, the end of life into death as, as we go in from, you know, f- mm-hmm. you know, autumn into winter, you're seeing the, the, the dying out of the leaves, the crops are being harvested. And all of a sudden you have the barren trees and things like this. So you're seeing a transition of, you know, exact opposite of like the, the, the spring equinox when we start seeing all of a sudden death back to life. Right. So yeah. is that the core reason why those holidays were around that time or why did they believe that the veil was so thin at that time? Well, it's that and, um, uh, that the late anthropologist Sir James Frazier wrote in his seminal volume, um, the, uh, the golden bow, which I recommend people check out, um, it's a little dated, but it still serves as one of the the hallmark works on on magic and comparative religion. And Frazier uh, devoted an entire section of this multi-volume work on the dying and resurrecting God, um, the the corn deity, as he as he called it, um, that you find in the form of gods like um, Osiris in Egypt. Um, and Mithras, exactly, and um, oh, another one might uh, Melk Melkart or Adonis in Phoenician mythology. Um, they all represent this same kind of thing, which ultimately is a kind of mockery of of Jesus' sacrifice. You know it, that Jesus is the is is the as C.S. Lewis put it, he's the myth that's true. So it. You know, he is the dying and resurrected God on all these other things, just like in the demonic realm, are a counterfeit of the original. It's flipped on it, flipped on its head, so to speak. Um, but this is a time when a lot of those deities were also uh, honored. Um, that had to do with the uh, the agricultural cycle, the dying and the, the rebirth of of the year and. Uh, that's why so many of those, so many of these agrarian calendars started their new year in the fall, is because the the their concept of sacred time was reflective of what they thought the gods were doing throughout the course of that year, and so it's all it's all kind of snowballed together. It it, it, it there's a lot of overlap between that and the the concept of of communicating with the dead. But see, I spoke with Luis Marcos, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with his book, but it was the the myth made fact, and he, he took that quote from mm-hmm. Lewis, and mm-hmm. me and him got to talking, and I told him I said I always seen that you know how how scripture says what the devil uh, intends for good or for evil that you know God turns for good for those who love him. I asked him, I said, I've always kind of seen when people talked about, you know, Mithras and Adonis and, and Osiris, you know, even if the devil meant it as a perversion, God spun it as a good thing, as uh, basically like a preconditioning. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you think that God didn't speak to his entire creation, Mm-hmm. You know, and he only chose to reveal himself to the Jews without even any kind of preconditioning. When these Gentiles heard this story, it would it would be almost like they were being invaded by a foreign god. 
So mm-hmm. at least with this, you know, preconditioning that they had, it was a familiar story to them and they were more prone to accept and believe it. Right. And I, I'm not, I'm not a Jungian by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think that in a lot of ways we're, we're hardwired, you know, we're created to think about these kinds of things. Um, it's just that God, Yahweh, had a plan from the beginning, and those members of his heavenly host that rebelled against him, that led this coup against him, knew part of that plan, and so they corrupted it, you know, in in the millennia leading up to it. Um, not we could do an entire other show on, on just the mythic themes that have been corrupted uh, that were only realized in, in reality uh, by Jesus Christ. Um, but it's, it's almost like another example would be like the, the, the demons had and the, the fallen Elohim as well. Had, they didn't have a complete picture, but they had a better foresight of things down the road than we did. And so they were able to position themselves in the cultures of the world and to engineer those cultures for their own ends um, and even to geographically situate themselves in the ancient Near East. They didn't exactly know. That's why so many of the giant tribes early on were in the prehistoric and the ancient Near East. They didn't know exactly where the Messiah was going to show up, but they had this general idea about it. And these the spirits of these, specifically the Rephaim, are, are are really at the the heart of the matter of the subject that we're talking about today. Uh, I got a one more question. That's I guess uh, it's still on the same track. I promise I'm not going to jump around too much. But that's looking okay. looking into these, and we see these festivals, and we see them all around the world. We talked about um, Samhain from uh, the Celtic culture. You know, obviously, there's you know All Hallows Eve or Halloween here. Um, mm-hmm. All Saints Day. <laughs> well, we look at um, was it? I mean, literally, there's festivals around the world. The Oban Festival, the the Festival of Wandering Spirits in Japan, um, uh-huh. the Qing Ming Festival in China. Shinto. <laughs> and then uh, there's I can't even pronounce this one in Taiwan. It's like Zongwai, but it's the Hungry Ghost Festival. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh, and then the Gia Jatra in Nepal, and it's it's you're celebrating. Mm-hmm. It's always this veneration of the dead, and you're seeing mm-hmm. it in all these different cultures around the world. And it's a very similar thing. And it's usually like you said around that time of year. I'm seeing all these festivals happen like around the very end of August through mm-hmm. the end of September or the end of uh, October, beginning of November, like November first. It's that it's that mm-hmm. harvest time. Mm-hmm. How is all this connected? Where does it come from that each culture around the world has a similar belief, a similar veneration of the dead that, you know, in, in a, a pagan festival for this? Well, as I see it, people have two alternatives. Um, you know, there's the, the archetypal, which is more kind of the scholastic, academic um explanation is that there are these mythic archetypes that express themselves in similar ways throughout different cultures um uh, simply because that's that's how humans think but i think it goes beyond that to the second option because the other option is that yes god i think hardwired us to believe a certain way to believe in certain things because that that's all wrapped up in our, our, our spiritual fulfillment as well. But these corrupting influences, these gods of the nations, as it were, you know, in keeping with the, the divine council worldview, the Deuteronomy 32, you know, take on all of this, um, is that they, they ensconce themselves in places where they could affect and engineer these different cultures. And, revealed themselves as the overlords of these various, you know, cultures. Um, and the, those systems that they set up were carried on by e- either the, the gods of the nations that remained in place or by their, their 
progeny and, and later generations of tribes of giants. Um, so really, the, I think those are the two options at the end of the day that certainly um, a, a general audience would have to consider. And secondly, in particular, a believing Christian audience would need to take into account that, um, you know, the reason that, that, that mythologies around the world and the festivals that are associated with them, because that's really what festivals and ritual are, is they're the, they're the, they're the almost theatrical reenactment of mythologies. Um, so said um, anthropologist Victor Turner, who was also very, very keen, very insightful in these kinds of things. Um, but that's, uh, that's really why we see a lot of similarities in, in the timing of these festivals, in the themes of these festivals of the dead, is because they're all, a lot of these people around the world, the, the vast majority of them are getting different slight variations on a theme, uh, culturally nuanced for a particular society as, as revealed by these gods of the nations and their later projects. My name's Nick. I'm the owner of Kevlar Joe's and I'm the roaster. I'm an Air Force Security Forces veteran, a dad to three wild boys, and a husband to my wife, Crystal, and a coffee enthusiast. From a family in a small town in Missouri, we started with the simple idea of crafting a perfectly bold cup of coffee. Inspired by wellness and countless pots of stale coffee while deployed, we wanted to craft a bold, clean, and smooth coffee. So we did. And we realized we wanted to share this coffee with our friends. Lord knows we could all use a good cup of coffee right about now. From the farm to your coffee cup, there's nothing like a good, well-crafted and bold cup of coffee. No matter what time of the day, it's there to pick you up, motivate you and relax you. We hope you enjoy our coffee. Be bold, be humble, be Kevlar. And you can find Kevlar Joe's Coffee Company anytime you want at www.kevlarjoe.com. And for listeners of the Dig Bible Podcast, use the code, all caps, DIG20, whenever you're checking out to get a 20% off discount. Enjoy. I think you see that too. I think I agree with you 100%. I think you see that with... Um, look at the different carvings on the walls, like the Anunnaki and, and different around. And you go into South America and you see these same, you know, carrying the little hand bags or whatever those things are supposed to be. They have the same yes. the same look and how these cultures would have communicated. You know, uh, if we listen to the mainstream, they would tell us they never, ever would have been in communication. There's no way they could have been. But obviously mm. they're seeing something similar. Something's mm. telling them these things to to. Uh, erect these these um, megaliths to these these uh, gods that they're calling in these gods, mm-hmm. and and they're so similar from culture to culture to culture that oh, they had to have it. that influence. Mm-hmm. It just makes a lot of sense to me. Right. Well, I wanted to talk to you uh, more specifically about a lot of the lore surrounding this festival. You know, specifically mm-hmm. with the the druids. And you hear, you know, on different podcasts and and blogs and stuff, and you hear about, you know, just like, for example, bobbing for apples. Bobbing for apples was when the Druids would go and kidnap children and boil a cauldron with apples in it and told the children they had to stick their face in and grab an apple if they wanted to uh, avoid being sacrificed or you know building these huge wicker men and putting people in it and burning them alive just some of these you know Mm -hmm. the myth and the lore surrounding the druids and these human sacrifices and things like that i'm just wondering if maybe you could elaborate on some of those and you know separate fact from fiction well the what we know about the celts is largely taken from um Greek and Roman sources, and of course the the, the Celts as a, a kind of general designation for um, Caucasian peoples in, in northern and western Europe. There were, of course, 
ethnically it's 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 a little more complicated but this general culture of the celts what we know about them comes largely from from the people that gradually conquered them um so the greeks and romans first and then of course there were later peoples that were brought about as well during the dark ages and late antiquity um but we do get these little artifacts within the text of, of of these greek and roman historians that do um corroborate some of what uh the celts in general and the druids specifically were up to you and you mentioned the wicker man sacrifice uh, which is recorded in a, a number of occasions uh, i think not the least of which is julius caesar's um, gallic commentaries on his conquest of gaul um but the the Celts themselves, the only alphabet that they had was the Ohm alphabet, and it was it was used extremely sparingly, and only by the Druids. The Druids didn't really write anything down, because they thought that um, writing something down somehow demeaned it. They were they were largely an oral culture, and they transmitted vast amounts of complicated information and a, a, a very complicated. Um, uh, educational regimen that they they went through um from ovid to bard to druid um but a lot of the the emblems and 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 practices that survive um, in modern halloween celebrations are kind of watered down versions of the original um the jack-o'-lantern is probably the most prolific symbol of, of Halloween in the, in America. Um, and most of us growing up probably carved pumpkins, uh, here and there. Um, this, this was actually a practice, uh, that was descended from not carving pumpkins, but carving turnips, uh, with these little faces and, the Celts would put a, a coal, a hot ember inside the turnip because you're doing more fine work with the turnip. You got a little more room to work with in a, in a pumpkin. Um, that's just the American version of that practice. But these, of course, would be set outside. Um, in some some instances, they were they were to. Um, ward the druids off. Not necessarily ward them off, but signified that the proper rites had been followed by family, so that, that a child sacrifice or some kind of human sacrifice would not be necessary. Um, the uh, the other interpretation is that they they signified, in fact, where druids were supposed to stop um, to pick up sacrificial victims. They were dispatched in any number of ways, uh, not excluding the wicker, wicker man practices. Um, but that's probably one of the more prolific images and rites that survived in a kind of watered down version. Um, another is the, the actual dressing up. You know, we associate today, at least the commercial end of Halloween, um, we associate with people and kids in particular dressing up as, you know, all kinds of ghastly things from the traditional ghosts to, you know, vampires and werewolves and mummies and witches and zombies, uh, you know, even their favorite superheroes or, or what have you, it just sort of runs the gamut. But this, this is a practice that, that is probably, probably goes back to the oldest foundations of Druidic religion um before they began to conceptualize their gods as as anthropomorphic um, and so there there's a kind of totemistic element to it a totem is just a, a an animal spirit um and in a number of the sort of raucous uh almost carnival type type rites that were observed by the Celts um at Salwin they would they would don these animal masks, um, sort of take on the, you know, the, not just the natural 
it's sort of behavioral aspects of an animal, but any supernatural uh, qualities that were assigned to particular animals. Um, to a lesser extent, although it's not associated with Salmon or Halloween, it's in the Nordic world. Um, by way of, of illustration, the uh, berserkers in Norse culture would, they were called berserkers because they would actually wear bear skins. Bear skins That's what, yeah. what that means in, in German. Uh, and in some cases, wolf pellets. Um, so, the, again, the, the practices that we see today, which have been largely commercialized although they're still you know arguably spiritually very dangerous um stem from these older uh very crucial components of, of rights in the the i would argue not just the ancient world but the prehistoric world as well uh when when humanity's exposure to these fallen elohim and their progeny the giants um was still very fresh. Well, the trick or treat. Now, is that associated with that too, with, with the druids, or is that just something that's been, um, you know, Americanized? Or well, no, no. There again, that's sort of tied up with the 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 uh, the jack o' lantern practices. You know, as a as a kind of token. You know, if you you you've done the proper rites to avoid, you know. Um, having members of your family taken into that sort of sacrificial raffle. Um, but the, what it grew into, um, was a kind of, uh, uh, uh sanctioned mischief. You know, we, we typically don't, don't think about that in a, a societies that are based on law and order, but it happened with some frequency, uh, probably with frequency, uh, that would alarm people, uh, even in the Christian West. Um, the uh, I mentioned the Festival of Carnival that happened in in February, which is probably a a, a descendant of the Lupercal um, on the Roman calendar. But it it uh, and is preserved in, in festivals today, even like like Mardi Gras. But it was this raucous uh, festival where uh, you know not to put it too bluntly, but such pornographic imagery was paraded, you know, down the thoroughfares of cities and people were sort of given license uh, to be given over to, you know, this kind of riotous debauchery. Um, and so the, that too is sort of wrapped up in the, the trick or treat idea, but it, it again, over the centuries, it, it got watered down. Um, when Halloween arrives on American shores, um, in um, really in the seventeenth and eighteenth seventeenth and eighteenth century, um, it's largely a mainstay of the uh, Virginia colony and the colonies that were associated with the Anglican Church and the later Catholic Church, like um, uh, the colony of Maryland. Um, but in the Puritan northern colonies it, it was eschewed because those were all based on reformation theology those were protestants um, and so halloween and even things like christmas uh, were kind of eschewed because they were associated with the catholic church of course by this time the catholic church had had sort of christened uh the festival of salwin and it became halloween or all hallows eve uh, but when it arrives um to the shores, it takes a couple of centuries for um, even the, the sort of watered down banal versions of those practices that arrive in, in the states in the form of, of, of colonies, rather in the form of, you know, parties and games and things like that and dressing up. Um, it's really not until the 19th century where we see this uh, in the middle of the 19th century, there's a huge influx of, uh, of Irish and German immigrants. Um, and the Irish bring with them their, you know, their Salwin traditions that have been have been largely uh, sort of christened by the Catholic Church. Uh, but the trick or treat traditions turn into an excuse for the kind of lessons in a way that you saw in the Carnival Festival with all of its debauchery, except 
it's mischief, mischief um, in the form of, uh, I'm not just talking about playing a, a trick pass. on somebody. <laughs> not, not, not just playing a trick on somebody, but, uh, you know, vandalism and arson and, uh, uh, you know, just uh, a theft, uh, all manner of, of crimes literally committed. So much so that um, in the beginning of the 20th century, there was a push to promote the, which I suspect is, is also demonic at its heart, was a push, a, a popular social push to get kids more involved and to kind of blunt the criminal aspects of Halloween. Yeah, that was um, Elizabeth Crabs, wasn't it, in uh, Newwaka, Kansas? Yes. Yeah, uh, I had read up on well, that. I never knew that. That blew my mind. It was like, basically, it was like the 1920s to the 1950s, you've seen children being incorporated in these large parties yes. because of this woman, yeah. Elizabeth Crabs in Kansas. It was mm -hmm. the 1913, she threw the first, like, huge block party and mm -hmm. said that basically the kids were destroying the gardens and vandalizing, doing all these things. Yeah. So she just thought she could wire them out. And it didn't and work so, the first year. So the second year, yeah, she doubled down and, and all the, uh, right. the crime and the mischief seemed to settle down. So it just kind of spread from there. I thought that was pretty wild. Yeah, it, it is, you know, something that, that on the surface seems to be well-intentioned and, you know, with all the, all, all that's demonic about Halloween being promoted to children, you can see the supernatural, you know, chess game going on kind of behind that kind of the demonic stratagem behind it. Um, and that's often, you know, how it happens. It seems innocuous on the surface. Uh, much like many people would, would argue about Halloween today. Uh, but underpinning the festival itself are all of these very archaic and, and in fact, demonic elements. Now, a quick, question on that and, and like i said not to stray too far off topic but i kind of feel that the the church a lot of times would attempt to i guess suppress that those pagan traditions by trying to insert their own holidays or or trying to put their own traditions in place i mean we can look at that with Chris, with christmas yeah, right jesus was not born on december 25th we we know that we are pretty sure it was sometime in september now um, mm -hmm. by looking at everything. So the church puts his birth there to kind of coincide with the winter solstice and the pagan festivals that, that kind of go along with that. We see traditions in Easter with, you know, an Easter egg, right? We're looking again at, at some of these pagan traditions that come around with, um, you know, the church uses it, oh, it's new life, it's Jesus' resurrection, but that's not where some of these other things originally, po you know, populated. But we're, it's a, it's a fine line because you're trying to fight a demonic thing, almost using their own game at, at some point, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, Christmas is a whole other discussion. I'm as sorry, is, I didn't mean to go as, too far as off. Is, as is Easter, but uh, and we can certainly talk about that around those holidays if you want to. Um, but with Halloween, um, one of the things you have to understand about um about church history is that as that as public paganism began to descend into the shadows, um, basically beginning with the Edict of Milan uh, under Constantine, when Christianity gained sanction, it would eventually become the official religion of the Roman Empire. But when the church began to send missionaries into um, largely parts of Europe, but, but remote parts of the known world, the Western world at the time, the sort of standing order was, was to canonize or, or, or christen uh, sacred space and sacred time. In other words, for example, if you've got missionaries that are ending up in, in the Germanic lands and there are sacred groves of oak trees uh, dedicated to, you know, Odin, um, the, the church hierarchy would tell the missionaries, look, don't, 
don't chop the grove down because the people are already used to gathering there for their ceremonies. Build a church there. Uh, the same thing with sacred time, you know, in the case of like Halloween that we're talking about tonight. Um, they would have said, well, don't, you know, don't throw all of those practices out. Let's make the, instead of homage to dead ancestors and dead ancestor gods, let's remember, um, our, you know, family members that have, have passed on. Uh, and we'll, we'll call it, um, we'll call it All Hallows' Eve. Uh, because there are saints, and the, another reason was that there were lots of saints that didn't have their own day, uh, and so this just become, kind of became a catch-all. And that, that's where how the word Halloween comes from. All, all Hallows Eve, All Saints Day, the next day. Um, but yeah, you, you this syncretism was kind of the, you know, whether it was the the fledgling Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, they had a very similar approach to, you know, these missionaries that they sent out. You know, they would they would basically take the old agrarian festivals and put a, a Christian, you know, overlay on them. Um, so that's why, um, you know, you mentioned a, a couple of other festivals on the Christian calendar of the year. That's why you see a lot of these is this, this sort of Christian gloss is, is given to them in order to uh, to try and bring pagans into the fold and, and become not uh, ethnophrenies, as the, the Eastern Christians would call them. They're basically unbaptized or, or, or in, in a kind of catechism being educated uh, in, in the Bible and theology. Um, but still be able to retain some of those cultural practices. And unfortunately, there, there are, are negative and demonic things that, that were associated with those practices. And what ended up happening is you provided, they provided a kind of, of vehicle for the conveyance or perseverance of, of those practices. That's a because a, a lot of them a lot of them show up in you know I mentioned public paganism a moment ago a lot of because paganism went underground didn't disappear um, you know the the old gods just became things like fairies and spirits and and elves and gnomes and things like that to uh, a lot of the peoples of, of Europe and they would. They called them hearth religions because people would practice, you know, they might be regular churchgoers, but they would still maintain these customs in their home around the, around the fireplace. That's why they were called hearth religions. And in fact, the word heathen uh, is taken from that because of these practices that were done around the, the fireplace. Um, and in, it, you know, depending on how long they went on, some families might not even remember why they had these little statuettes or whatever on their uh, on their fireplace mantle, or you know, why they cultivated certain herbs during certain phases of the moon or something like that. Um, and for people who are interested in this, uh, there are historians like. Um, uh, Carla Ginsburg and um, what's the guy's name? Uh, uh, wrote a book called Binding Passions. This other guy that I'm trying to think of, uh, Guido Ruggiero, uh, excellent micro historical st studies on these kinds of practices. If people are interested in, in learning more. It seems like at the root of that, you know, you see this, it's almost like a, a massive, um, you know, spiritual warfare that we're not even seeing. So we have these pagan mm -hmm. holidays that are put in place, you know, in some cases thousands of years ago. And then we're seeing, you know, we try to curb it for the better. It's almost, it's a back and forth. But I think Vicki Joy was the one that told us, and it's one of the things that's always stuck with me. She goes, you don't always have to leave the door open. Sometimes your windows just cracked just enough for something to creep in. And yeah, that spiritual warfare, I think, is is 
all around us and we see it in so many different ways. And at the same time, sometimes the scariest ones are the ones that we don't know are affecting us, right? We don't know that things are, that we're letting things in, that things are affecting us in a negative way, but we just accept them. And I think that that's a huge part in our culture today about, I mean, you could say that about Halloween. We can say that about a lot of different things in our culture today, but I think that, you know, every time we, we give something an inch, they just want, they want two more inches, you know, they're just going to keep taking more and more and more. But every time that uh, the church or, 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 someone does something if it was miss crabs who did something with the best intent you know she strikes back and then they strike back twice as hard it's just Mm -hmm. one of those things that i think we see so much in our society today and it's so hard because i don't think most people see the underlying how much of this that we've accepted how much of this stuff that we've that's become commonplace to us how much of this is is just it's it's part of us now well, it's a desensitization, mm-hmm. and it's almost like the frog in the boiling water. You don't turn the water mm-hmm. up to extreme heat on the frog because the frog will jump out. You slowly turn it up, and then it doesn't want to leave because it's nice and warm. And the next thing you know, they're boiled. And it's like mm-hmm. these customs and these traditions of men, you know, like us. We grew up, you know, trick-or-treating and dressing up for Halloween. We thought it was fun. Of course, we didn't know all the underlining stuff and histories behind it. And then and then when you do find out about these things, it's natural that you're like, I've done this for 30-something years. You know, it's harmless. Mm-hmm. And I love how uh, mm-hmm. Tom Dunn said a few weeks ago, he said, what you can't uh, crucify through the blood, uh, men tends to justify <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's that's true. I mean, the and this again, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier with with the gods of the nations, you know, the fallen Elohim and their their progeny engineering culture for their own ends. Um, you know, I wrote this paper a couple of years ago called the word or the words, um, where I, I traced words for king and ruler um, in Indo-European languages, which those those words share phonetic and morphemic similarity, but I trace them all the way back to um, the uh, roots for words like Raba and Rephaim and, and Rapa, because you get words like Rex in Latin and uh, Roy in Spanish, Ray in Spanish, Gree in, in uh, Gaelic, um, Rajan in Sanskrit, in uh, Raha and Pak Tagalog in the Philippines. Um, literally dozens upon dozens of words with that initial R vowel morpheme that seemed to stem from this concept of these these underworld gods um and that's just one word and that's again Uh, across so many cultures across the world which again shows that connection yeah because because out of proto-indo-european spring 90 percent plus of the languages spoken in the old world um on the continents of europe and asia and um the the more that i i study proto-indo-european and proto-semitic and in particular um you know eastern and and central turkey ancient anatolia um there's a lot going on here uh linguistically and culturally in prehistory and and early antiquity um, that i think is going to revolutionize biblical studies in the next five or ten years because it was just a melting pot you're right there in the middle of uh, the mediterranean and you had all these different cultures and just, I mean, it, it really was, it was like the, the, the melting pot of, of the world back then. Oh yeah. But I'm talking about, about ground zero and not, not, not necessarily Genesis six ground zero, but it's the same time frame. Uh, we tend to think of, of, of middle and lower Mesopotamia or Samaria and Babylon, uh, Akkadian civilization, and later Assyrian Amorite civilization was, 
we tend to think of that as where civilization sprung from, but we're having to take those dates millennia back. Um, and we're finding that the, the wellspring of, of civilization, city-state dwelling, is actually actually more to be found in eastern and central Turkey, ancient Anatolia. Yeah, go back to uh, Tepe. Which, which, is, which is the southern end, uh, particularly, you know, areas like um, the Armenian highlands and the, the mountains of Ararat uh, in far eastern Turkey. That's the southern end of the Proto-Indo-European heartland. So there's a lot of, of ideological, cultural, and linguistic exchange uh, going on there and mixed in with all of this is is artifactual evidence at places like you mentioned Gobekli Tepe, Karahan Tepe, even in, in more southerly Natufian sites like Tel Caramel, uh, this cult of the dead, uh, which seems to be a, a fundamental aspect of, of, of early human religion. You look back and you think how many times did God bring up the fact, do not sacrifice your kids to Molech or, or things mm-hmm. of this nature. We see it throughout the Old Testament, I mean, time and time again. And and it's one of those things, we talked about that before, the same thing when we talk, Deuteronomy is talking about the, um, you know, a calling upon the dead. And, uh, you mm-hmm. know, do not, you know, uh, uh, practice necromancy, do not... Um, you know, work with mediums, and God says this countless times, and we've talked about this before and said, if it didn't work, why would God warn us so many times? He's not warning us because it doesn't work. He's warning us because we don't know what we're calling on. Somebody did it, and then I love how, too, in Deuteronomy, it said they sacrificed two demons and not gods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to Mm -hmm. gods that their fathers did not know. Yeah, that had come recently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, that just blows me away. Judd, you want to give everybody uh, a, a little plug of where they can find your books, any podcasts, anything you're, you have sure. upcoming? Yeah, um, people can um, check my stuff out at uh, burtonbeyond.net. Um, if I teach coursework on, on this stuff, um, the the one that's really hot right now is preternatural morphology, where it's I, I go through a biblical analysis of things like vampires and werewolves and and demons and zombies and tie them back to the pre-flood uh, world and uh, biblical demonology, also a pertinent topic. Um, and if people want to check those courses out and take them, you can register anytime. Um, and you can find that at burtonbeyond.net slash IBA. Uh, and that'll take you to information and courses. Um, I've got, as I pointed out, I've got some books in the uh, in the works. Um, Dr. Aaron Jenkins and I are finishing up the Gobekli Tepe and the, the Bible book. Um, Doug Van Dorn and I are working on a book on the Serpent Mound of Bashan. Um, and my long-awaited book, The Van Helsing Way, uh, should be coming out towards the end of this month to kind of coincide with, um, I think it's a pretty timely release, actually. I, I don't know, not just in terms of the year, but also just in terms of the general times we live in. People need to be more aware of this. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much, Judd. We really appreciate your time, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again in the future. My pleasure. Anytime, guys. All right, thank you, Judd. Appreciate it. Uh-huh. I guess I want to go on record and just say that we have to understand that this spiritual warfare is all around us all the time. Things like Halloween are something that we have to look in the mirror. We have to say, hey, is this affecting me? Is this one of those things that that are we letting something evil in? Is it something that we shouldn't participate in? Um, Just as Miss Krabs did, she tried to do something for the right reason, and it may have been great for that neighborhood and for those people because she took those people away from the vandalism and things that got them together to, to be part of a community. But at the same time, there is a fine line there. But 
I'm not saying that anything is wrong if you take your kids trick-or-treating or if you go and, and do something of that nature. I'm not saying those things are wrong, but you have to make that decision. You have to understand whether you believe that's affecting you in a negative way. Is that something demonic that you're letting in your life? Is there something that is um, negatively impacting you? But we're never here to condemn. We're only here to kind of shed some light on things. So appreciate everybody listening. Love your time that you take to, to listen to us um, babble on and, and actually just come to listen to amazing people like Judd. But as a whole, we just really want to say, read your Bible, be in your Bible, make God's word part of your everyday life, because that's the best way to have that discernment to make the right choices. And I think, too, knowing is half the battle. You know what I mean? It, it, know, knowing and intent. So now you know if you do these things, and now that you do know, you can be on the the spiritual watch so to speak and when you see some things that don't look right or sit right with with you or, or, or the holy spirit then you know to avoid those things to stay away from them now that you know but like you said it's a, a matter of intent a matter of the heart and that's all on you and between you and the lord thanks guys keep on digging hey guys thanks for listening to the dig bible podcast if you would check us out on facebook Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Comment. Tell us where you're from because that would be cool. Comment, subscribe, like, hit the thumbs up. Share with your friends. Share the share the love. Till next time. See you Trick later. Trick or treat!